Um, but it wouldn't have been out this year. You know, it, it is not a film made to make money for corporations. It's a film made to ignite our imaginations and our curiosity and get us to lean in and figure out what we're going to do next uh, because um, this is an essential time for action. And so that that's our offering and that's our hope. Award-winning filmmaker Ava DuVernay, who explores black history in many of her films, from Selma to 13th to the series When They See Us. Her new movie, Origin, is in theaters now as Black History Month begins in the United States. It dramatizes the book Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, by the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Isabel Wilkerson. Ava's the winner of the Emmy, BAFTA, and Peabody Awards, and an Academy Award nominee. Democracy Now! has job openings. Go to democracynow.org for more information. I'm Amy Goodman. Thank you so much. What is climate change? How is it affecting our lives? And what can we do about it? We'll connect the dots from energy to extreme weather, public health, and more. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizerowitz. Join me for Climate Connections during the evening news, weekdays at 5 p.m. here on 90.7 KBOO Portland. This is KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBU Evening News. Coming up on the KBU Evening News, Portland City Commissioner Renee Gonzalez expresses tacit support for illegal police surveillance. The Oregon Supreme Court rules state lawmakers that walked off the job cannot run for re-election this year. And in national news, the child tax credit has been resurrected in the most recent bipartisan budget bill. Good evening. This is the KBU Evening News for Friday, February 2nd, 2024. I'm Josh Salem. And I'm Reed Johnson. Portland City Commissioner Renee Gonzalez has expressed tacit support for unlawful police surveillance at a city council meeting this week, raising alarm bells for civil rights groups. Commissioners voted to approve an annual report from the Portland Police's Joint Terrorism Task Force, or JTTF, which cooperates with the FBI. American Civil Liberties Union of Oregon Associate Jude Al-Hazal Stone testified to the council about long-standing concerns the organization has about surveillance and privacy infringement. Here's an excerpt of his testimony. My name is Jude Al-Hazal Stone. I'm testifying on behalf of the American Civil Liberties Union. And as we've testified before, the ACLU of Oregon has several concerns about the JTTF's collaboration with the Portland Police Bureau, but today I want to especially focus on the role of ORS 181A-250. Oregonians who have long valued government transparency and police oversight first passed this statute in the 80s. An ORS 181A-250 prohibits law enforcement from collecting or maintaining information that contains uh, about people's political, religious, or social views or associations um, without reasonable suspicion of criminal activity. And a huge motivator for passing this law in the first place was that the Portland Tribune revealed that for the past 20 years, the PPB had engaged in widespread surveillance of over 3,000 individual and groups without reasonable suspicion of criminal activity. Thankfully, Oregon demanded better, and the statute now holds our law enforcement agencies to a higher standard than many other jurisdictions do, including the federal government. 
So in other words, the PPB must comply with ORS 181A250, but the FBI does not. And that's a fundamental piece of our concern with the JTTF partnership. Since only a select few officers have security clearance to participate in JTTF cases, there's no outside oversight ensuring that PPB officers are not violating the statute when collaborating with FBI colleagues who have different standards. And what's even more distressing is PPB's own spotty record of complying with 181A250 in recent years. So this wasn't just in the 80s. The ACLU of Oregon successfully sued the PPB in 2020 for violating the statute when they live streamed Black Lives Matter protesters who were participating in lawful First Amendment activities. By recording and broadcasting the footage, which often contained close-up shots of the protesters' faces, the PPB subjected Portlanders to surveillance for their political activities without a criminal justification and made people attending the protests vulnerable to identification, federal monitoring, and doxing. When the PPB openly violates ORS 181A250, there's little reason to believe that their behavior is unimpeachable behind closed doors. And as many of our community partners will speak to shortly in their own testimony, the FBI's track record with unfounded invasive surveillance is no better and also often targets Black, Muslim, Arab, and other BIPOC communities. So given the long and recent history of both agencies chilling surveillance practices, and given the city's commitment to improving trust between Portlanders and the city, we request that at a bare minimum, the JTTF annual report be furnished with additional details to help increase transparency around the partnership between the PPB and FBI. That was Jude Alhazal Stone, ACLU Oregon Associate, testifying at a Portland City Council meeting on Wednesday. After testimony from other Portlanders, the council, including Commissioner Gonzalez, voted to accept the Joint Terrorism Task Force report. Gonzalez made this remark with his I vote. I'm going to vote to accept this report. I think cooperation between the FBI and Portland police is essential uh, in keeping our community safe, keeping protecting our country. Um, I do want to emphasize that the calls for transparency is a two-way street. Uh, I do think some of the advocates get, have to answer for some pieces of this. There was allusions to the lawsuit over the 2020 uh, television or broadcasting of the riots downtown. It was one of the clearest ways for people to see the real damage being done by the riots. And in the name of um, transparency, I think we need to keep that front and center. With that, I vote aye. The ACLU of Oregon has raised alarm bells about this comment since, saying Gonzalez expressed tacit support for illegal police surveillance. In fact, in 2020, the ACLU sued for a restraining order to block police surveillance of protesters, and a circuit court agreed. In 2021, the ACLU won the suit, with the court agreeing that Portland police violated the law by live-streaming protesters. The racial justice protests in Portland were widely reported on, legally, by the local and national media. Eight Oregon Republican lawmakers who walked out of the 2023 legislative session are blocked from running for re-election this year. The Oregon Supreme Court ruled that under Measure 113, the boycotting senators disqualified themselves. Measure 113 was passed by 68% of Oregon voters. They voted to end walkouts that were making it impossible for the legislative chamber to conduct business. The amendment disqualifies legislators from re-election, quote, following the end of their term if they are absent from 10 legislative floor sessions without permission or excuse, end quote. The lawmakers argued that the language in the measure was unclear. 
they claimed that being ineligible for, quote, the election after the term is completed means that they would be able to run for re-election this year, following which they would become blocked from re-election in 2028. The court ruled since voters approved the measure with the appropriate information, the senators are barred from re-election. In 2023, 10 Republican senators walked away from the legislative session for six weeks. This delayed hundreds of important bills on abortion, transgender health care, and gun rights. Both parties have used the strategy in Oregon in years past, but Republicans have increasingly been using it in the latest sessions. Oregon lawmakers returned to Salem for the short legislative assembly starting on Monday, February 5th. Oregon state lawmakers return to the Capitol next week for a 35-day session. Ahead of them are a number of important topics like housing, road tolling, and Measure 110. This week, legislators spent most of their time at informational meetings. Governor Tina Kotek is requesting $500 million in state funds to increase the state housing stock and address the affordable housing crisis. Leading Democrats announce, announced plans earlier in the week to recriminalize the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs, among other reforms to the voter-passed Measure 110. Lawmakers may also move on a bill to establish a right to repair smartphones and electronics and on a bill to add protections for Oregonians against debt collectors. Queer and gender nonconforming populations are disproportionately affected by houselessness. A report out this week shows they are underserved by Portland's resources. Kebu's Ezra has more on the story. The queer community needs more homeless shelters and housing services. That's according to a recent report by the County-City Joint Office of Homeless Services in Portland and Multnomah County, or JOHS. Katie Cox is the executive director of the Marie Equi Institute, focusing on providing supportive services and health care to unhoused and insecurely housed communities. We work one-on-one with folks to provide um, peer support and services and systems navigation, health education, wound care, recovery supports, and harm reduction. LGBTQ people disproportionately experience homelessness. Nearly 17% of LGBTQ adults have been homeless, which is more than twice the average for the overall population, according to a 2020 study from UCLA. LGBTQ plus people, and especially trans folks, um, are very overrepresented. And while we don't have as much data on our communities as we need, LGBTQ youth are more likely to get kicked out or to choose to leave um, unaffirming homes. Our communities also struggle with mental health and substance use issues. And we face discrimination that makes it harder for us to find safe and consistent housing and employment. The JOHS report found that there aren't enough queer-oriented resources in Portland to support the unhoused queer and trans community. Hostile policies in other states have really prompted many queer and trans folks across the country to relocate to Portland for its LGBTQ-friendly reputation. The report noted that, quote, many local emergency shelters are gender binary, which discourages many transgender and non-binary people from accessing them. Many LGBTQ people are uncomfortable and experience safety concerns at traditional emergency shelters. If you're a non-binary or even a binary trans person who doesn't, you know, quote-unquote pass, meaning you can, you might be able to tell that person is trans, and your only options are a single-sex male or female shelter, you're faced with an impossible decision. You can either spend the night in a potentially unsafe shelter environment for you or decline shelter services altogether. While youth resources such as Outside In and New Avenues for Youth are queer-oriented spaces, their age cutoff is 25 years old and comparable adult services are much harder to come by. 
The two queer-oriented shelters that exist in the county are considered transitional housing because they provide supportive care while residents work on graduating to more permanent housing. There are significant barriers to accessing them, including the need for referrals and wait times for an opening. And there are zero emergency shelter beds currently funded by the Joint Office for LGBTQ People. The report looked for guidance to other areas such as San Francisco. That I think looks like specific programming for unhoused or insecurely housed LGBTQ folks, uh, actual shelters or even housing units that prioritize LGBTQ um, identities. Another big piece that we would really like to see shift working with the Joint Office to ensure that non-culturally specific providers who are offering culturally specific programming are held accountable to those equity standards and ensuring safe and affirming access. To quote the report, despite Oregon's pride flag-waving reputation, our community is not well prepared to welcome queer newcomers, many of whom face barriers to housing and other supports. For KBOO News, I'm Ezra. Election year politics could interfere with a bipartisan tax bill in the Senate. Chicago becomes the latest city to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. And an Arizona Republican wants the state legislature, not voters, to pick presidential electors. With more on the story, it's Catherine Carley with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. This is not welfare. Addressing childhood poverty in America ought to be a priority for us every single day. Democratic Massachusetts Congressman Richard Neal says 16 million children will benefit right away from an expanded child tax credit. In a rare bipartisan agreement, the House passed nearly $80 billion in help for low-income families, along with equipment and R&D tax breaks for businesses. But the top Republican on the Senate Budget Committee, Iowa's Chuck Grassley, opposes it. Grassley says it could help President Joe Biden get reelected if the rebate checks go out before November. Chicago is the latest and largest city to pass a Gaza ceasefire resolution. Alderman Rosana Rodriguez says her city is adding its voice to the growing call for peace. The Palestinian community that I believe has not felt heard is going to be able to go home today knowing that the city government listened. The Oregon Supreme Court says 10 Republican state senators who staged a weeks-long walkout last year over abortion, gun safety, and transgender health care can't run for re-election. The senators were disqualified under a voter-approved measure barring lawmakers with more than 10 unexcused absences. But Senate Republican leader Tim Canope says the move will smother dissent. I think what the public really needs to know is there's people that are standing up to defend our constituents and their constitutional rights against the tyranny of the majority. Ultimately, the work of the legislature will get done. Canope threatened future walkouts. To pass anything, Democrats will need at least three Republicans present to meet the two-thirds quorum. An Arizona lawmaker wants to give the legislature the power to appoint presidential electors, regardless of who gets the most votes. Republican Senator Anthony Kern was among the state's so-called fake electors who attempted to hand the state to former President Donald Trump in 2020. Donald Trump won this election, and I call upon the Arizona legislature to vote to decertify the 2020 election. If the legislature passes Kern's resolution, it will go to voters, who will decide if it should be added to the state constitution. College students in Kentucky could no longer use school-issued IDs to vote under a bill that's cleared the GOP-led Senate. 
Supporters say student IDs are vulnerable to fraud and easier to alter than government IDs. But State Senator Democrat Karen Berg says they're secure. You have to be enrolled. You have to show who you are. Guys, these IDs are being used for access to every building on campus. And faced with historically low recruitment, the Navy now says people without a high school diploma or GED can enlist. Applicants will still have to score a 50 or higher in the Armed Services Qualification Test. I'm Catherine Carley for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. You're listening to the KBU Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for Counterspin, your look behind the headlines with fairness and accuracy in reporting. At 6, it's Rising Up with Sona Lee. Then at 7, Civic Cipher. Tonight's weather will be partly cloudy, with a low of 37. Tomorrow's weather, mostly cloudy skies throughout the day, with a high approaching 51. Today in history, in 1922, James Joyce's Ulysses is published. The book is widely considered to be one of the most important works of modernist literature. The quote of the day is from Irish novelist James Joyce, who coincidentally died today in 1941. Joyce wrote, A man of genius makes no mistakes. His errors are volitional and are the portals of discovery. A new book by a native Alaskan writer wins the Newbery Medal. With that story and more, it's Antonia Gonzalez with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. An Alaskan writer's new book has received a nod from the American Library Association's prestigious Newbery Award. KOTZ's Desiree Hagen reports the book's a retelling of an Anupiaq story that was lost for nearly a century. Nasirak Rainey Hobson lives in Anaktuvik Pass, Alaska, a community of about 300 people, roughly 70 miles above the Arctic Circle. The 46-year-old author and illustrator published her first book, Eagle Drums, last September. The book is a retelling of the first Messenger Feast, a traditional midwinter gathering that celebrates Inupak dance, art, and storytelling. The festival died out after Presbyterian missionaries came to the Arctic but was revived in the late 1980s. And they based all the the feasts and celebrations on the recollections of elders who remember attending it as children. And one of the things they remembered was a story that explained how our people got music and song and dance from the eagles. Hobson's book, Eagle Drums, follows a young hunter named Pinga who is kidnapped by a giant eagle. Taken to the Eagle's Village, Pinga learns practical wisdom and drumming, along with traditional Inupiaq values like sharing, community, and avoiding conflict, while living among giant eagles who frequently shapeshift into humans. Interspersed between pages are Hobson's colored pencil illustrations that guide the narrative. Hobson says her two daughters were her biggest inspiration for the book. I think it's important that we create things for our kids to see themselves in. Her book has already received several awards, including the American Indian Youth Literature Honor, which recognizes the best writing and illustration by and about Indigenous peoples. For National Native News, I'm Desiree Hagan. 
Kaiwa author N. Scott Mamaday's legacy is being remembered after his death last week in Santa Fe, New Mexico, at age 89. His first published novel, Housemaid of Dawn, made him the first Native American to win a Pulitzer Prize. Hannah Bissett has more. Scott Mamaday, or So I Tali, which means Rock Tree Boy, was an author, poet, painter, and lecturer. Mamaday often wrote about his experience as an indigenous person in modern times. In the 70s, that was uncommon, according to his close friend and co worker, Shirley Snavy. Snavy, who worked with Mamaday on several projects throughout the years, remembered the impact he made with his first book. That was a game changer at that time in history that he was able to tell this very intimate story about the experience of a warrior in modern times. At the time of publishing Housemaid of Dawn, the understanding of PTSD for veterans was slim to none. Snavy says that Mamaday's ability to write this story resonated with veterans coming home from war. To be able to hear a story and think to themselves, oh my gosh, that's my story. Now I understand why I feel the way we do. They met on a project called American Masters, where Mamaday was the star of an episode. I always wanted to get some story from one of our famous people on that program because, after all, we are the original American Masters. To make that happen, she began the work for the episode, including the search for an all Kiowa production team. His way of storytelling has just really honored the Kiowa legend. So I was just really grateful that we were able to put that documentary together. Mamaday also wrote stories for children's literature and taught at a variety of universities. He was also an illustrator, particularly in watercolor, which is highlighted in several of his poetry books. I'm Hannah Bissett. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Hopes for reviving the expanded federal child tax credit got a big boost this week when the plan cleared the U.S. House of Representatives. Final adoption is not a guarantee, but experts in reducing poverty say implementation would help the nation's low income families. Mike Moen has more in Wisconsin. Tax filing season is underway, and Congress is one step closer to helping low-income families get a bigger break on their returns. Policy experts say a new expansion of the child tax credit would address poverty in Wisconsin and elsewhere. Late this week, the U.S. House passed a bipartisan tax bill that includes a three-year expansion of the child tax credit. Analysts say it isn't as robust as the one-year expansion from 2021, but a key provision would allow families with little or no income to gain eligibility. Tim Smeeting, a retired economist with the University of Wisconsin, says it could allow struggling households to address a big expense they haven't been able to cover. You can pay heating bills that you've let go because you know that the utility won't shut you off until you get the tax refund. He says eliminating those debts frees up money for families to spend on children's needs. Unlike the previous expansion, there would not be monthly payments. It would only apply to a family's income tax refund. The compromise measure also includes business tax breaks. Despite bipartisan support in the House, the bill faces an uncertain future in the Senate, with pushback from both Republicans and Democrats. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities estimates that in the first year, expanding the child tax credit would lift as many as 400,000 kids above the poverty line. The Center's Chris Cox says while there are calls to bring back the original expansion, this bill would still make a difference. Half of kids who don't get the full credit now, their families will gain $600 or more from the bill. And about 40% of kids who don't get the full credit now their families will gain $1,000 or more from this bill. 
Bill's sponsors hope to get final approval so qualifying households could claim the credit on this year's taxes. Cox says if you file earlier, the measure instructs the IRS to make good on your return. Wisconsin has an earned income tax credit, but the state is often cited as having a regressive tax structure that hurts low-income households. Experts say the federal plan would ease that burden. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. U.S. Senators pressed social media CEOs to apologize to families of victims of online sexual exploitation before the Senate Judiciary Committee this week. They say social media companies have not done nearly enough to protect children online. Farah Siddiqui reports. A contentious congressional hearing on Wednesday saw a unanimous push for regulations on social media specifically related to children. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley pushed Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg to apologize to families of child victims over social media that caused exploitation, harm, and death. CEOs of Meta X, TikTok, Discord, and Snap testified at the hearing. Zuckerberg and Snap CEO Evan Spiegel gave apologies for the first time after Hawley put them on the spot. Would you like to do so now? Well, they're here. You're on national television. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? Zuckerberg turned and stood and faced the audience and said, I'm sorry for everything you have all been through. No one should go through the things that your families have suffered, and this is why we invest so much, and we are going to continue doing industry-wide efforts to make sure no one has to go through the things your families have had to suffer. Some victims' families have said although it was a surprise, they didn't think the apologies sounded sincere. Members of Congress hope to find common ground in an effort to create laws that would make the Internet a safer place. Senators, including Georgia Senator John Ossoff, repeatedly asked the social media tycoons to consider the victims and recognize the risks of being online. We want to work in a productive, open, honest, and collaborative way to pass legislation that will protect American children above all. If we don't start with an open, honest, candid, realistic assessment of the issues, we can't do that. If you're not willing to acknowledge that the Internet is a dangerous place for children, Earlier this week, explicit deepfake AI images of pop icon Taylor Swift were also released on X. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre announced that legislation would be the obvious way to remedy this type of offense. For Missouri News Connection, I'm Farah Siddiqui. To honor American Heart Month today, the American Heart Association is asking everyone to wear red to raise awareness of heart disease, especially among women. Suzanne Potter has more. Today is National Wear Red Day, part of American Heart Month in February. Lots of celebrities and news anchors will be wearing red, and many iconic buildings and bridges will be lit up in crimson, all part of a partnership with the American Heart Association. Heart Month events draw attention to deaths from cardiovascular disease, which have been rising since the COVID pandemic. Linda Tsai with the American Heart Association says cardiovascular disease took 900,000 American lives last year, 57,000 more than in 2021. We just did a recent survey that shows that more than half of the people in the U.S. don't know that heart disease is their number one cause of death and that it actually claims more lives than all forms of cancer combined. The survey also showed that only 44% of women realize heart disease is the number one health issue they should be looking out for. The American Heart Association also advises people to keep an eye on their blood pressure, which is a key indicator of heart disease. They have placed blood pressure monitors in public libraries and are working with health clinics to distribute blood pressure cuffs that can be used at home. 
Tsai says sudden cardiac arrest turns fatal more often for women. For sudden cardiac arrest, a woman is less likely to receive CPR from a bystander than a man. Too many women die from cardiac arrest due to the lack of awareness, and partly because people are afraid to touch them. This year, the American Heart Association celebrates its 100th anniversary. In 2023, the AHA led a successful campaign to ban candy-flavored chewing tobacco in California. This year, Tsai says they'll be working on proposals to tackle food insecurity and to make sure schools are prepared to react in cardiac emergencies. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. Many municipal fire departments aren't prepared for climate change. Firefighters accustomed to fighting fires in buildings may need training in battling wildfires as these blazes grow more common and extreme. Dr. Anthony Lizowitz has more on the story with Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. As the climate warms, large, intense wildfires are growing more common and spreading into new areas. In the past year, major fires have ravaged parts of eastern Canada, Louisiana, and Hawaii. Where local firefighters, they're fighting fire at a scale that they've just not experienced before. Kent Maxwell is the fire and forestry coordinator for Colorado Fire Camp, a wildland firefighter school in Salida, Colorado. He says wildland firefighting requires special tactics, like cutting trees and digging trenches to slow a fire spread. Structural firefighters, they're most accustomed to fighting a fire within one enclosure, a single building, whereas what they're encountering now is a full-on wildland conflagration just burning right into the town. Maxwell says combating these blazes requires a different skill set. And according to the National Fire Protection Association, the majority of municipal fire departments in the U.S. are not prepared for this type of firefighting. So Maxwell says that as climate change causes bigger, hotter wildfires, it's important to equip municipal fire crews with the training and resources they need to help protect their communities. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. You're listening to the KBOO Evening News for Friday, February 2nd, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news, stories, and tips at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes Matea Carlin and Ezra. The producer is Althea Billings, and our engineer is Laura Miller. Special thanks to Suzanne Potter, Antonia Gonzalez, Mike Moen, Catherine Carley, and Dr. Anthony Lizowitz. The director of the Evening News is Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash eveningnews. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Josh Salem. And I'm Reed Johnson. All of our Kibu programs, including the evening news, are supported by our members. If you would like to become a member and support our programming, you can go to kibu.fm slash give or text kibu to 44321. Stay tuned now for Counterspin, then at 6 p.m., Rising Up with Sona Lee.